Oh, yeah. What is up, my dudes? Welcome to Olympia Oddities. I'm Trista. And I'm Steven. And today, we're telling you about how a tragic mix-up and a broken rule caused the accidental poisoning of more than 200 patients at the Oregon State Hospital, causing the death of 47 people. Accidental. Accidental? Accidental. Accidental. It's a whole thing. That sounds like it was accidentally on purpose. No, no, no. We'll get into it. I know it sounds super suspicious. It definitely sounds like, how could a poisoning be accidental? But like... Uh, surprisingly easy back in the day, honestly. Kind of kind of terrifying. What the hell? Thank you, OSHA. We'll get into the history of the Oregon State Hospital and some of its mistreatment of patients and sketchy practices, explain how the mix-up happened, explore the panic of a possible terrorism attack on the U.S.'s food supply, and reveal how investigators were finally able to solve the case after the men responsible finally came clean. But before we get into it, we should probably give a content warning. We're going to be talking about, you know, a mental hospital back in the day. And mental health still isn't dealt with the best in this country. Definitely not. Let alone, you know, 100 years ago. So basically a trigger warning for like any questionable mental health treatment or practice you could possibly imagine in this episode. There's some really bad treatment of people, um, forced sterilization stuff really young victims as well as like some elder abuse stuff so you know might be a rough one so the oregon state hospital is located near salem the state's capital city it was founded in 1862 making it the oldest operating psychiatric hospital in oregon and one of the oldest hospitals under continuous operation on the west coast now this is the same hospital they shot the shining in right no it was one flew over the cuckoo's nest oh excuse me one flew over the i Jack Nicholson. No, I, I totally I, got I, I totally see the brain connection there. You're all good. One flew over the cuckoo's nest. My bad. All right. Yeah, let's we'll, keep going. We'll Wait. have to watch that soon. I have it somewhere. Uh, yeah, you do. I gotta look for it. I yeah. saw it the other day. We'll dig it out. Yeah. Uh, after the Oregon State Hospital for the Insane closed in Portland, the hospital was created to take over the previous hospital's duties. The hospital's original name was the Oregon Hospital for the Insane. And the street it was on was briefly renamed Asylum Avenue. I wonder how long it t- took them to think of that one. Local residents protested this name change, and it was renamed Hawthorne in 1888 after the man who established the hospital, James C. Hawthorne. Good name. And I thought it was interesting because, you know, as we'll get into it, mental health wasn't really, it, it, you know, people who suffered from mental health conditions were treated very terribly back in the day much and certain yeah. things were considered mental health conditions when we know damn well that they're not like mm-hmm. being gay oh yeah um so it's interesting that like these people were treated so terribly but at the same time there was still enough people in the community to be like hey this ain't right yeah that's an offensive name and yeah. like that's messed up like, so we're, like, not, we're not okay with this yeah yeah By 1891, the hospital housed 478 male patients and 212 female patients. The growing population led them to building two additional wings onto the hospital, as well as converting the hospital from gas to electric lighting. Ooh, that's that's pretty big stuff there, actually. They were getting big big time upgrades. It's a hell of an upgrade, too, actually. An old theater I used to work at actually had some extra gas lighting still kind of installed in the theater and then they had to like actually go in 
tear that out they put the electric it's it's a that's a process my guy (laughs) i can imagine by accounts taken in the year 1896 some of the most common reasons for admission into the hospital were epilepsy masturbation (laughs) intemperance and religious paranoia i I feel like i i suffer from like most of those and i'll (laughs) let you guess which ones they are Ah! like (laughs) oh man it's intemperance if if that means just having a bad mood which is what it sounds like i just would the basis of these are just so all of them are just so ridiculous actually just wasn't it you and i just yesterday talking about cereal and how cornflakes was your favorite they're not my favorite but i do enjoy a bowl of cornflakes i like what i call frog cereal which i think is really like honey smacks or something but i've called it frog cereal since i was a kid i just speaking of masturbation we're talking about cornflakes last night doesn't do anything to prevent it kind of fun though yeah that's crazy that that would get you into a a sane asylum back in the day just immediately hand you a bowl of cornflakes or like here you have to eat just pounds of this now not bad <laughs> not to make light of the situation but like not bad <laughs> I'd, I'd take that over like some weird mystery meat that they tried to feed me. I'd be like, oh, at least I know what's in a cornflake. That's a very good point. 90% corn, 10% flake. In 1900, the hospital again underwent renovations and the campus was expanded. Two women's wards were built, along with four men's wards being added onto the main building. Wow. An interesting design feature of the hospital were the railway and tunnels created during its construction. The tunnels allowed hospital employees to move patients around without them being seen by the public. You can tell where the tunnels are by purple glass prisms embedded in the ground above them. That is so strange. This glass was installed to provide lighting into the tunnels. The tunnels were also used to move laundry and to deliver food and items. This reminds me of a couple of things. One, it reminds me of a book I read as a kid in high school called We. I can't remember the the man's name. He was Russian, but I can't, I'm not even going to attempt to say his name. But it reminds me of that, just the imagery of that. And it also reminds me of the Waverly Hills Sanitarium. I was going to bring that up. I couldn't remember the name of it, but yeah. I was like, what's the name of that super famous haunted, like, you know, it was like a mental hospital that... No, actually, it was a, it was a tuberculosis oh, hospital. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. Sorry. I knew it was some sort of, like, mental facility. Or- it was just medical facility. Medical yeah. facility. I can't talk today. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that's what that makes but me I think But I remembered of. that system of like underground tunnels. And I was going to be like, that's what that makes me think of too. Yeah, because it started out as, um, yeah, just a railroad for the train to come in to disperse medicine and stuff like that. for Supplies for the hospital. And then, yeah, the deaths just became too much. And instead of having, you know, bodies leave in hearses and ambulances and whatnot out of the front, yeah, they just ended up shutting down that railroad and they just started storing bodies down there. Creepy. This one kind of, you know, the food and supplies delivery is, you know, pretty harmless. But, yeah. But when you really start thinking about the tunnels being used to basically hide these always people comes back from to, the public, it's just like, it always comes back to that. And it's it's, it's just, so sad. It is. It really is. I mean, a different form of hiding people for a different reason, but still just so profoundly sad records from 1900 show that the hospital had a total of 1118 patients 
The ages of these patients ranged from 8 to 86 years old. Wow. Hospital records show that the most common reasons for an insanity diagnosis in 1900 were excessive living, liquor, narcotics, and STDs. What is... What is excessive living? Is that well? Okay, I guess I can kind of living that moss. Out. <laughs> Enjoying that fourth meal. <laughs> Gotta get that, that double layer crunch wrap, bro. <laughs> no, I, I I mean I can kind of surmise what it is by way of liquor, narcotics, Just and STDs. It, up. But it sounds fun. I don't know. Like, I, I know think I'm about- sober and everything, and I love books and painting and going to Barnes and Noble and like coffee. But I'm like, cool, <laughs> excessive living. Just those words get me fired up. Just when I read insanity diagnosis in 1900, where excessive living, I'm like, okay, excessive living. What the hell is that? And then I hear narcotics, liquor, and STDs. And then I'm like, yeah. oh God, Motley Crew. That'll do you. <laughs> what is excessive living? I just gave you three examples. <laughs> When you do all three of those things together, that's excessive living. You can pick two or one. I do STDs and I do narcotic. Just <laughs> <laughs> I meant to like have in your life. In 1913, the hospital was finally renamed the Oregon State Hospital after years of efforts to get the name changed. A quote from an 1897 report from the hospital says, We would also recommend to your honorable body that the present name of the institution, the Oregon State Insane Asylum, be changed to Oregon State Hospital. The disgrace felt by patients, as well as the humiliation of their relatives and friends, would be largely obviated by a correct understanding of the character and objects of the institution, and this would be conserved by the change suggested. By the mid-1920s, the hospital had a staff of 200 employees and five doctors, The number of patients grew to 1,864. Unfortunately, the hospital also began its eugenics program in full force around this time. The hospital would sterilize more than 2,600 patients until the 1980s. What in the hell? First off, I'm blown off by the figure of five doctors to 1,864 patients. That is insane to me. You have 200 employees five of which are doctors. I don't know that that's necessarily included with it. I mean, I'm sure that that's actually a separate figure, but still that there's only five people that's like really certified to like diagnose and help these people properly. And then you just got a bunch of other people, just normies that don't know really what they're doing. That's that, that just makes me kind of nervous. I just can't believe that they were sterilizing people there up until the 80s. That's insane. And the fact that they had a eugenics... Pro- uh, is... In 1937, the hospital introduced insulin shock therapy and metrazole shock therapy. Insulin shock therapy involves giving patients large doses of insulin to create comas every day over a period of weeks. What in the hell? This is like some like Nazi wartime doctor shit. It's evil. Like it it's, really. That's is. why I wanted to make sure that we really stressed that warning at the very beginning. That Holy it's like shit. Uh, metrazole is a drug that was formerly used as a circulatory and respiratory stimulant. It was found to be useful in treating depression, but side effects like seizures were hard to avoid. Yeah. yeah. But the hospital's darkest day, arguably, is what happened on November eighteenth, nineteen forty-two. 
The patients had a dinner of scrambled eggs for dinner, made from some government surplus eggs that were just yolks, so they had to add some powdered milk into it in the kitchen in hopes of making it a little bit more appetizing. Within seconds of eating the first mouthful, some patients were on the ground writhing in pain. Others complained of severe teeth pain and not being able to feel their faces. Within minutes, the first patients had died. Dr. William Lidbeck was one of the first people on the scene. He was on call and lived in a cottage on the hospital grounds, so he was able to arrive to the scene quickly. When he arrived, many of the patients had extreme nausea and abdominal cramping. Some were vomiting blood, while others were having seizures. Others had paralysis and were struggling to breathe. What a horrible way to die. Oh my god. Yeah. That that's just I just I just I'm I'm just imagining that scene with too much detail. Cuz I feel like I have seen something very close to this in a movie. Like maybe maybe my mind is like mixing that scene from Stand by Me where they're talking about like they're all trading stories and whatnot that kid at the fair and like everybody's throwing up blueberry pie. It's a lot more red in my head. <laughs> but man, that what a, what oh god, these terrible these these poor folks. In the panic after the event, newspapers got the numbers wrong and reported that over 400 people had been poisoned by the eggs. The governor of Oregon at the time called the event a mass murder. Because of World War II, people were on high alert over sabotage, or what we would now call terrorism, especially of the food variety. The eggs coming from a government surplus supply certainly didn't help soothe anyone's fears. The frozen 30-pound cans of eggs had arrived six months earlier and had been divided amongst schools, hospitals, and other state institutions in Oregon. Governor Sprague ordered that none of the eggs be used, and the federal government followed him up by issuing the same order. See, and this is where I really... This really drives home my personal stance on eggs. If it comes out of a tube, a but anything but a shell, the shell that it came from, don't fucking eat it. <laughs> You're a round egg versus square egg, square egg guy at McDonald's. As round you should e be. Because <laughs> the round eggs are the real ones. They are. They very much are. Yeah. Fuck square eggs. I, I'm, I'm with you on this one. I take the same stance. I remember the first time I got one of those like breakfast sandwiches or whatever and I got that square egg and I was just like, why did they go to the play area and just cut out foam and heat it up and put it in my breakfast sandwich? This is disgusting. Yeah, I'm like, I go back and forth with eggs all the time. If I have eggs, I have to just like eat them quick, not think about it because the texture just kind of gets to me. But like those kind of eggs specifically when it's not like from the shell, when it's like weird from a, from a carton eggs. That texture. Ooh. I love it. I love cooking eggs. I love eating eggs. Eggs are delicious. But then I'll go through like phases where I'll literally like, like I've eaten like gas station eggs before. Like those weird little hard boiled eggs that like come in the plastic. That's questionable. Pack. Yeah. I don't know you anymore. Yeah. But I'd like to get to know this side of you. Yeah. Hi, I'm Steven. Hi. I eat gas station eggs. <laughs> <laughs> but again, if it doesn't come from a shell, don't fucking eat it. Investigators from the Army, the American Medical Association, and the FDA all came to Salem to try to solve the mystery of what had caused the mysterious poisoning at the hospital. But unknown to all of them, the mystery had already been solved. It had been solved just minutes after the event began, in fact. Could you imagine just being a government worker show up to, like, be a part of an investigation? They're like, oh, we already solved it. They're like, well, damn it. I came here for nothing then. Who did it? They solved it 
but they didn't tell anyone. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, we'll get into it. Ready? Oh, no. <laughs> Working in the kitchen that night were assistant cook Abraham McKillop and a team of trustees, which were patients who were allowed to help out with tasks in the kitchen and around the grounds. The hospital was understaffed because of the war, averaging one staff member to every 10 patients. Oh, crap. The hospital dietitian had recently left to go work at Camp Adair. The hospital's dietitian had also been in charge of how the hospital stored their food, and had he not left, this whole incident might not have ever happened. Overwhelmed and needing help with getting dinner ready, McKillop handed his keys to the basement storerooms to one of the trustees, George Noson. George had been admitted to the hospital in 1942, had schizophrenia, and had recently been allowed onto kitchen duty as a trustee. Giving the keys to any of the patients was against the hospital's rules, specifically Rule 8, which had been established in 1908. So many 8s. There's only two, but still. And, like, if I'm going to say if it's, like, if it's in the top 10 of the rules, it's probably, like, an important rule. You know, it's not, like, Rule, like, 27 that you're, like, glossed over by the time you get there. It's, like, it's a top 10 rule. Anytime I just read about rules, I think about that Hell's Angels book that I read where he was, like, and if there's a rule... Nine times out of ten, somebody did it, and that's why it's there. <laughs> George Nosen had been down into the basement storerooms before, when accompanied by hospital staff. But the storerooms had a confusing layout. Once you got down the stairs, there were two storerooms, one on the left and one on the right, about 11 feet away from each other. They were both also unlocked with the same key. Thinking that he had made his way into the right room, Nozen had filled up a scoop with about five to six pounds of what he thought was powdered milk, brought it up to the cook, and it was dumped into the eggs, cooked, and served. What Nozen hadn't known, though, was that he had actually filled up the scoop with roach poison. This is why we read labels, children! It you... wasn't marked. This is why we have labels, children! I glossed right over that. I was just, I saw five to six pounds and I was. <laughs> the active ingredient in the roach poison was sodium fluoride. <sighs> you might recognize as a common ingredient in tiny doses in toothpaste. In small doses, it strengthens your teeth, but in large enough doses, which can be just five grains or an amount about the size of an aspirin, it can kill you. That's terrifying. And a painless death it is not, as one survivor of the hospital poisoning was able to recount the event to a newspaper. Literally whispering his story to an Oregonian staff writer, Richard Noakes, the man said, As soon as I had swallowed the first spoonfuls of my eggs, my face became numb. He whispered weakly, through lips still blue from the effects of the toxin. My teeth began to ache. Pretty soon... My legs became paralyzed. They have been paralyzed most of the time since, and my face is still numb. Holy crap. Many more patients might have died if it wasn't for the heroic actions of one staff member. Some patients had complained of the eggs tasting soapy or off to nurse Ali Wassel, who took one bite of the eggs and, after noticing how off they tasted, ordered the patients not to take a single bite more of them. She became ill from the bite that she took, but she survived the incident and is credited with saving the lives of many of the patients. As chaos spread around the hospital, back in the kitchen they worked to figure out what had gone wrong. Cook McKillop had asked to follow Nosen's steps back down the stairs to figure out where he had gotten the powder and his scoop from. In horror, he watched as Nosen led him right to the big barrel of roach poison. But the men kept quiet about their discovery, 
shocked and horrified by what they had caused. Idiots. Since the investigators weren't informed of this ghastly discovery in the kitchen, they were still working hard to solve the mystery poisoning. The eggs that had been served were tested, and and within 22 hours, they discovered that sodium fluoride was the culprit in the poisoning. Eggs up and down the coast were tested, and sodium fluoride was only found in one batch of them, the batch from the Oregon State Hospital. Investigators had narrowed it down to something awful happening within the hospital's kitchen, and after repeated questioning, the men finally cracked. They were arrested five days after the poisoning, on November 23rd. Okay, that's a lot better than what I had expected. They, they fessed up to it quicker than I had anticipated. I almost thought that they weren't going to say shit. I mean, I'm, glad, I'm sure that they had, like, I knew that they were going to get caught. I had a feeling they were going to get caught. I'm like, how the hell do you not get caught for something like that? But, yeah, I'm glad that they fessed up to it, and I'm glad that it was five days. <laughs> Nozen was charged with involuntary manslaughter, and McKillop was charged with accessory. This doesn't mean a happy ending, though, and Nozen was haunted by the result of his actions until his death, which occurred after an altercation at the hospital. His remaining years at the hospital were plagued with lots of fistfights and altercations with other patients who never forgave him or stopped blaming him for the poisoning. The official cause of death given was heart disease. Some good did come out of the event, with a poison label law going into effect, as well as increased staff and funding to mental mental hospitals throughout the United States. Thank you for listening to another episode of Olympia Oddities. If you want to help support the podcast, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Olympia Oddities Podcast on both. You can tell a friend about us or leave us a five-star review. We'd really appreciate that. I'm Trista, and you can find my personal Instagram at SaloonGhost. I'm Steven, also known as The Electric Outlaw. You can find me on various social medias. I'm kind of taking a break from it at the moment. Um, Hello, Ohio peeps, if you are listening. And until next time, friends. I love you.